Welcome, guys. Uh, we are in the middle of a series that's going to take us all the way through to the fall, uh, and we're calling it Christianese. And basically, it's a series about language, and more specifically, it's about the language that Jesus used versus the language that we have said that he has used. Uh, so we're looking at maybe like well-known verses in the Bible, stuff that Jesus has said over and over and over again, that we have begun over time, just naturally as what people do, we've begun to kind of pull it out of context. So our hope here is to put that language back into a little context, both historical and spiritual, and give it fresh life. Um, we learned last week, that, uh, or two weeks ago, uh, that like the word Jehovah really isn't a proper translation. Um, there's stuff in the Bible uh, that we think, there's stuff that's not in the Bible that we really think is in the Bible. Um, this too shall pass is actually not uh, in the scripture. <laughs> Things like that, that we just over time have thought like, oh, that's in there, right? Uh, and actually, if we do and take a closer examination, not a lot of it is, and it's fine to include, I love to include, uh, but to get back to the actual words, the red letters of Jesus is what this series is all about. Um, so we're going to explore a couple of those verses this morning. Um, let's see, I'll give you a little roadmap here. Mainly we're going to be talking about idioms, which is a linguistic device that I love because every single culture has their own idioms and some are very funny. Um, and then we're going to go to Matthew 6 and we're going to talk about uh, Jesus' good eye theory. Uh, and then we're going to talk about um, nuclear families. And then uh, we're going to talk about uh, the kingdom. So we got a lot to cover in like two, two and a half hours. So uh, let's pray and we'll get going. God, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for language. Thank you so much for the ability to communicate. Uh, and God, we thank you first and foremost for the ability to communicate with you. Uh, my prayer for this morning is that this sermon would be uh, a communication. Um, and it wouldn't just be me speaking outward, but this would be a conversation uh, between us and you this morning. And would you bless that? Um, would you make it uh, authentic and beautiful? Amen. Um, so, how we collect language is kind of fascinating to me. Um, when we learn to speak as children, we're really just copying our parents. So we're learning based on copying, and, and I think that's a fascinating principle just to take you through life. Like, copying is not necessarily a bad thing because it's the root of everything. When you give someone a template to do something, generally you have to say, here's how you swing a hammer, copy me. And then after a while, that rhythm becomes normal to them and they're swinging whichever way they want to. But we have to begin with sort of copying. And actually, we kind of have to begin with stealing. So we steal from everything, right? As we go through life, we're stealing phrases from our friends. We're stealing styles from other people. We're, we're kind of a collection of humanity. And as individual humans, we are collectors of the humanity around us or the culture around us. And as a result, the language we use really is shaped by the people that are around us and the cities that we're in and all that kind of stuff. For instance, if you're on the East Coast, you're going to talk a lot differently than you are on the West Coast, right? I was just in Hawaii. It was such a rough time, guys. Uh, I was just in Hawaii, and the way they speak is much different than what we do here. Um, I'm from the Deep South, and the way they speak, trust me, much different than it is here. We all have different ways of communicating, and that's a beautiful thing. And I think what's awesome about the world right now is with things like the internet, television, all of that, we're in a unique time in history where other cultures are readily available and constantly available to us. Meaning that before long, we, we might all start talking a little bit the same, right? We may have uh, variances and differences, and that's going to make it beautiful, but there may be this unique kind of thing where, ooh, like, like accents may begin to shift and all that kind of stuff. 
for a time in my youth, I lived in Amsterdam. Um, and living there in about like 1999 to 2001, somewhere in there, um, it, we didn't have, that was like the dawning age of, of like internet. We had one, one of those, remember those iMacs that were like Technicolor, like the bright plastic iMacs? We had one of those in my family. Uh, it had a dial-up connection. It would take like 30 minutes to get on the internet. So there wasn't as much communication with California, where we were from. Now, I went back there this last year, and it looks totally different. Amsterdam used to have this uniquely Amsterdam vibe. <laughs> For some, that's much different than others. But Amsterdam used to have this uniquely Dutch sort of cultural vibe. And when I went back, I recognized that some of that cultural vibe had just kind of all meshed with, like, people were just speaking English. And before, you would have to say, sprek to Engels, and they would say, yes, I speak English, because they all kind of did. But now you just go, and the natural first thing out of their mouth, probably because I look very American, uh, was just English, right? So our cultures are changing, and the way we collect language is changing. The way we communicate is changing. At the bottom level of this series, everyone here, everyone here, no matter what you do in life, you have to use language, right? You might not have to give speeches, you might not have to like do sales pitches, but at the end of the day, everyone here has to collect language to use in their unique situation. I have to collect language all week long, to do what I do. Uh, and, and so the way that I collect language is on Sunday, I sort of uh, have a topic in mind, and then that all the way through the week, I sort of ask God, I go, okay, could you just show me some stuff? Let me be a good collector, a good student, a good learner this week. So what can I witness? What can I pay attention to that pertains to the topic? And then I just begin to collect different sort of language and piece it together, and then all of a sudden, you got a cohesive story, hopefully. <laughs> Sometimes, God will plop things uh, in my lap that I, have, I, I think has profound meaning, and I know for sure it's gonna fit in that week's sermon, and then I'll get to like Thursday, and it's been like the focal point of the entire sermon, and I'll go, that doesn't fit at all. And so what I do with that is I take it and I throw it in this little file I have in Evernote called Marinade. <laughs> And the marinade file is just stuff that I don't know what to do with yet, but I think has profound meaning. For instance, this morning, I didn't know what to do with this, but um, this picture came up. Do we have that picture? Um, I was nervous about uh, speaking as I am every Sunday morning, kind of working myself up, and I'm walking the dog outside, and right outside, as I'm thinking about the sermon, thinking about speaking, someone had placed a podium right in front of our door, and I was like, I don't know what to do with that, but I can definitely use that this morning. Snap, right? Um, What's the next one here in the marinade file? We can just go through these. Oh, uh, this is the, a collection of the words that are most uh, occurred in the Bible. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. Uh, but it turns out that and is the most popular word in the Bible, and I thought that was fascinating. Over 25,000 times. Again, what am I going to do with that? You may see that in a couple years. I have no idea. Uh, what's the next marinade slide there? Oh, <laughs> this is a guy on my street that every day at 5 p.m., walks out there and just stares down the street for a good five, 10 minutes. Again, I don't know what I'm gonna do with that. We'll see you later. Uh, they all go downhill from here, guys. Okay, no, 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 yeah, this one, this is the Council of Tuna. It was a news article that I came across about two years ago, and I kid you not, guys, every single week when I sit down to write my sermon, I'm like, can I fit in the Council of Tuna? It's basically a conspiracy that happened with three tuna companies. It's absolutely fascinating. It never works. So it remains in the marinade fast. And finally, uh, and this one's pretty cool. Um, I, when Notre Dame uh, caught on fire, right, I was like, oh my gosh, this, this is something that needs to be talked about and needs to be used. And I've yet to find a moment to truly fit that in. 
Um, but just the scene of all of those people singing hymns together, singing Ave Maria on, on, the, on the river, looking out at this amazing landmark of both like a cultural landmark and of Christianity, and just watching and watching that unity. And so the main theme and the main sermon points that I can pull from that are like, one, what kind of thing does it take for people to be unified? How tragic it is that we all get unified so easily over tragedy, right? And then second, and this is fascinating, I looked up, um, I think it was uh, Reuters or someone did a poll on uh, the different cultural responses to this fire. Uh, and they, they polled three different areas. Um, one got lumped in, but one was uh, like Western Europe, not France, but the rest of Western Europe and Asia. And then one was North America, Canada and the United States. And then one was France. And so the Western Europe and the Asia uh, continent, uh, they polled and they said, what is the number one response to this fire? What are people in other nations thinking? And when they polled over there, the number one response was, who's going to pay for this? Right? Western Europe and Asia were super concerned with, who's going to pay for this? Right? Not, not who's going to pay for this, who's going to but who financially is going to back this? Now, who's going to pay for this was the American, North American response. We wanted to know who's responsible. So the number one response was, who are we going to get to hold responsible for this fire? That's what we're most fascinated in. How did it start? Who's responsible? What's going on? That was the North American response. And then the French response, which I just think is so fascinating. When they were polled, this is their landmark. When they were polled for this, it wasn't who's going to pay for this, who's going to throw thrown in jail for this. It was, what does this mean? What does this mean? And only the French would just sit there with a cappuccino and be like, what does this mean? You know, like, but seriously, that's a beautiful cultural response. And I've heard from, from friends and folks that there's a huge movement right now and resurgence in Christianity in that area. And I gotta tell you, if that's the cultural response there, that's a culture that's gonna be so open and susceptible to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because a whole culture that's unified that says, what does this mean? is one that's going to be open to asking that question about every other little thing. So there are three cultural responses. Three different cultures have three different languages, three different words, three different idioms to describe the same event. And I think what's fascinating is in the Bible, we have exactly three cultures too. Now we have all sorts of little mini tribes and everything. You could go out into the hundreds with that. But linguistically, really when we're looking at it, we got Hebrew, we got Greek, and we got Aramaic. Three different cultures, three different languages, three different idioms, three different responses to almost every situation. And yet, all of those have become a melting pot by the time we get into the scriptures especially when we get in the Gospels and the New Testament, all of those cultures have kind of come to this same place. And Jesus' world is a mix of Greek and Roman and Aramaic and Hebrew. All of these traditions have come together. And so the cultural responses begin to get very confusing. And the idioms begin to get very confusing. So we all have these things called idioms. In English, we have things like, it's raining cats and dogs, or like, don't beat around the bush. These are things that don't literally mean anything, but for some reason we click in and we go like, oh, no, no, I know exactly what that means. It's raining hard, or like, get to the point, right? In Jesus' world, they had those too. 
And so when we're reading scripture, and especially in the words of Jesus, we have to kind of pay close attention. And I'm not saying, and I really want to make this as a big disclaimer here, I am not saying that you need a PhD in like biblical linguistic studies to understand this stuff. All I'm saying is if we take a closer look, which in 2019 means this, simply Google it. If we take a closer look at a scripture, we will find way more is going on than just a cursory reading. And that's beautiful too, please just read. But like, if something catches your eye, if something begins to go like, oh wait, what does that mean? Explore that. Google it, ask questions, email me, email one of our, our elders, our, our board members, just, like anyone here, take them to coffee and just go like, I'm, I'm really, I'm wrestling through this. What do you think about this? Because these idioms are real, like, and they're, they're different from our culture. And so paying attention to them really does take a lot. Right? Um, Jesus had an amazing idiom, and this is where we're going to kind of camp this morning. Um, and it's going to be, we're going we're gonna to take this all the way uh, from what he's talking about in a Hebrew sense to just family, which is a super fun thing to talk about uh, in this context. But uh, this is in Matthew uh, 6, and, uh, and this is the verse that I want to um, focus on. You guys have maybe seen this verse before if you've been in church at all, um, but the, the eye is the lamp of the body, right? The, the, Jesus is always kind of referring to the eye. There are all these miracles of blind people becoming uh, sighted people, and, and he, he seems to be obsessed with this idea of sight. Like, what are you looking at? And so from a cursory reading, the eye is the lamp of the body. Therefore, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, in middle school, that meant don't look at girls in a certain way. <laughs> but what it really means is something far more profound and far more deep. We can take that on the base level and it can say, hey, be careful of what you're looking at. And that's great. That's a huge lesson to learn. But there's something even deeper, which we're going to get to. Uh, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how terrible will that darkness be? So, the eye is the lamp of the body is actually a Hebraic idiom. Hebraic idiom is one of my favorite things to say out loud. What that means is it's a saying. And it was a common saying. It was something they would throw out like it's raining cats and dogs. When he said the eye, people would literally just go like, oh, I know what he's talking about. For us, we kind of have to take a step back and go like, what was he really saying? What he was really saying is, it turns out that the I stands for and was in that day a person's attitude towards others. And actually, literally, a generous person. So if you had a good I, it meant that you were a generous human being. And not just generous with your wealth, but generous as a human. Generous relationally, generous in friendship, generous with your home, generous with hospitality. All of that stuff was included in having a good eye. And the Hebrew scriptures kind of uh, really point at this. Basically, it means like a person's attitude towards others or how you'll respond to others' needs. When someone is in need, your good eye can see that. The Good Samaritan is a perfect portrait of this. It's a man with a good eye. So Jesus keeps pointing us back to this. Proverbs says this in Proverbs 22.9. It says, the generous good eye will themselves be blessed for they share their food with the poor. And then he flips it and he says what the bad eye says in Proverbs. Uh, a man with an evil eye, a non-generous human being, uh, hastens after wealth and does not know what will come upon him. So basically this idea of a good eye really comes down to Jesus' earthly mission, right? He's constantly kind of forcing people to be like, hey, have a good eye. <laughs> Look out for others. 
Look out for each other. If someone's in need, go help them. Right? That when he was on the ground, that's what he was all about. There are just multiple accounts of him healing blind people right in front of his disciples. And I think that that was a really clear way of Jesus saying like, hey guys, do you see what I'm doing? It's a good eye. Do you get it? And guys, they, they did, good news for us, they did not get it. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we're starting to unravel with translation and everything and, and taking our best guess at what this could mean. But you could boil all of what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount to have a good eye. Have a good eye. It's the lamp to your whole soul. If you're viewing the world in this way, you're just going to be filled with light. Your life is literally going to be better. So if we look at that Matthew 6.22 with a little translation clicked in, it looks like this. Uh, The eye is the lamp of the body. Therefore, if your eye is healthy, if you are a generous person in wealth and relationship, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, if you refuse to let others in, your whole body, read life, will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, if then the light is in you is darkness, how terrible will that darkness be? Basically, he's like, how are you walking through life? How are you including people? How are you excluding people? What is your motive as you walk out the door? Are you living your life in a way that says, if I encounter someone who needs me, I will help? And we don't even have to walk out our door these days to encounter someone that needs help. It's all around us. Because I'm not saying you need to be a superhuman and you need to encounter every single thing that you come across, but to live your life in this kind of vein is to follow Jesus. It's to say, I'm not doing this alone, but I'm following someone who's going to help me complete all of this stuff. And I'm just a conduit. I'm just an instrument. I'm just here to follow and act. And I think sometimes we just we forget that. Right? And we make it all about up here and not about right here. But Jesus is literally saying, like, no, right here, right now, in this kingdom that I'm bringing in hand, I need you guys to have good eyes. I need you all to have good eyes. Because that's what's going to make this place a lot more livable for you. (laughs) A lot more like heaven. Jesus is creating a radically different worldview here with this one little idiom. And so basically, their whole thing today is going to be about family. And I really want to put to it, what does that mean about our idea of family? To have a good eye juxtaposed with our view of family uh, is very interesting. And here's where we get to the Christianese part. Uh, Christianese does not serve the idea of biblical family in a great way. Um, in fact, they are kind of at odds. If you look at the words of Jesus when he's talking about family, and then you read something from Focus on the Family, they are going to look a whole lot different. I'm not saying that the Focus on the Family thing is wrong or anything like that. All I'm saying is Jesus' words about family and then our Christianese version of family does not line up well. And that might be shocking for a lot of you to hear, but here's the deal. There is no example of Jesus having any sort of nuclear family in the Bible. And I hate to really break this to you guys, but most of the writers of the New Testament were both bald and single. I've got one of those covered. (laughs) What we're looking at in the scripture when we try and solve marital problems, when we try and solve family problems, that's all beautiful. And it all works there because it all works everywhere. But there's a harmful movement in the church that kind of screams, if you're not in a family, then you're not complete. Then you're not all the way whole. 
if you don't have this standard nuclear thing down, then you're not, I mean, you're almost there, but like we're gonna do this whole series on family values and like, you know, you can come, but just gonna sit there for like six weeks, right? And that's a harmful reality in our Christianese and our language that we use. And so to pull back from that, I kind of want to go through what Jesus talked about his family. And what we're going to see is, at first, it's rather shocking. And I'm not going to even go through the most shocking stuff. There's stuff like where he said, like, you got to hate your father and mother and everything. I, I didn't want to tackle that this morning, to be honest with you. Um, what I'm going to talk about is Jesus's just overall love for people. And what I see in Jesus is not necessarily the view of family we have now, which is tribal, which is what he was dealing with. Family in that day was absolutely everything. Family didn't just define like, like oh, I'm a, I'm a cobia or I'm a so-and-so. Family was like, no, 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 no. My family identity is who I am in everything. That means that's my vocation. That's my job. That's my life. My family is, is my tribe, my unit, and they come first. We're a part of this larger tribe called Israel, but my tribe, my little thing right here, this is what matters the most. And Jesus comes into that, and he just wants to pull that apart because he's saying, guys, that's keeping you all in different camps. Don't you get it? Like, all of the conflict that you're having, these tribes go to war constantly, and they're fighting against each other. When there was, like, the Roman Empire up there, there's a real enemy, and they're just, like, kind of watching them below going, like, ha-ha, look what we've done to them. Right? They're all fighting against each other. And so Jesus' mission while he's there is to kind of go like, guys, you have to understand there's a bigger thing at work here. There's a bigger family. It's called the kingdom. And more than that, before, like, it, was the, it was Israel. That was the whole point. You've got this big family. You've got the 12 tribes. You've got this big overarching family in the scripture that's supposed to be unified in one thing, and that's following God. Not my vocation, not what I do, not my value. It's following God. That was what that whole family nation was supposed to be about. You're going to be a tribe that personifies what it means to follow me, to actually enact what I'm doing. So families in his day were a huge deal. And guys, they're a huge deal to us today. And every single family has idioms. So like I said in the beginning, when I'm collecting language and I'm paying attention, this week I was in Hawaii. So I was like, what can I talk about this morning? Um, and instead of putting you through a half an hour of me snorkeling or something like that, that's totally uninteresting. What I wanted to do is talk about family because when you're at a wedding, you are viewing family in an ultra unique way, right? Especially when it's a destination wedding like this, you got families who are all united under one kind of umbrella, but you got all these little micro families that come together and they all have their own little idioms, they all have their own little ways of doing things. And so I was just fascinated watching my wife's side of the family come in, um, mostly because they're all just very beautiful people and I'm very intimidated by them, but they came in uh, and, and each one had their own thing that they wanted to do. There were some that were just like, no, nah, we're just gonna go and hang at the beach all day. Chelsea and I were like, get me to the closest seafood available. We're just going to park it and eat all day. And then there were other people that just wanted to go snorkeling, wanted to go on adventures, wanted to go on that stuff. And there were other people that just wanted to sit down and chat, have a cup of coffee. Right? There's, just, there's different modes and different cultures even within the same family dynamic. And that was so true uh, in Jesus' day as well. And then we came back here. Uh, it's the summer in Santa Monica now, and it's hot, right? So everyone, there's like zero AC in the city of Santa Monica, so everyone has their windows open. So it's a unique time of year where you get to really get a close look into the lives of your neighbors and different family idioms. We have a neighbor 
I'm not, we're so guilty because our neighbors just probably hear us talking to our little dog like he's a human, like, hey, Baloo, how you doing? Response, how you doing? Um, but the other neighbors, uh, we've got these neighbors like down, I'm not even sure where they are. The, our, our alley's like, a, like an amplifying tunnel, so I have no idea where this sound is coming from. But a family that has a new baby uh, always has their windows open. That's, uh, that's hard enough. Um, but this baby loves, this little toddler just loves to bang on pots and pans. It's like its favorite thing. And so we'll hear the dad go, oh, Lizzie, is it drum time? And I go like, please, no, not drum time. And then you just hear, clunk, 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 clunk. Um, and then like, I, I got to the point where I was like, I'm gonna have, like, I'm gonna have to say something. I, I work from home, so I was like, I can't, what am I gonna do? Go to a, I can't, I can't work in this environment. Uh, and then I just hear a saving grace. I hear him say, Lizzie, guess what I got for your drum time? And you just hear no response, because it's a baby. And then uh, he says, I got you a tambourine. And I thought, oh wow, a tambourine. Well, that's not my response. I thought like this might be better than the pots and pans. The tambourine is so much worse. <laughs> the tambourine has a high frequency that cannot be blotted out. But the point of all that is every family talks in a different way, right? We all have our different idioms. We all have our different idiosyncrasies. And those have a tendency of clashing up against each other. But Jesus' whole mission was like, no, guys, you need to look at this not just as one idiom, but a, or not just as a lot of idioms, but a one grand idiom. And he put that in the context of the kingdom of God is at hand. Is at hand. And I think we miss that at hand part so much. We focus on the kingdom as something that's somewhere else. What Jesus was trying to say is, no guys, it's ushered in right here and it continues into eternity. Therefore, eternity starts right now. What happens here matters. What happens here matters even in the coming age. That's what the kingdom is all about. And this message of the kingdom was not that, hey, you guys all need to be on your own little individual paths and you all need to be fighting with each other and you all need to be doing that. No, he's like, the kingdom, you need to be unified in following me. And what that means at its base level is you need to be unified in loving each other as well as I love you. And to the ultimate example of that, that leads us to the cross. That's how far we're supposed to go to love people. Let's look at how Jesus disrupts this. We'll unpack a bit of scripture here. This is in Mark. Um, uh, and this is one of the first chapters in Mark and one of the first sermons that Jesus is giving. Uh, and Jesus has already made quite a stir by this time. Even in the chapters one and two, people begin to get word of this Jesus guy. And so they're following him. They're finding him wherever he goes. Crowds are starting to gather. And so that means that like the powers that be are starting to get a little bit interested in who this man is. Because as soon as you have crowds, what can crowds do? They can get unified about something. And if they get unified about something and it's against you, we're in trouble. So we need to pay attention to any crowd that gathers, but especially if it's this kind of radical guy who's spewing these things off about kingdom and love and all this kind of stuff. We need to like make sure that he stays under control. So Jesus is at a point where it's kind of fever pitch for him, and he comes into a house, and it just becomes this electric house party. So Jesus entered a house and a crowd gathered and it, uh, gathered again so that it was impossible for him and his followers to even eat. Now, that might seem like a trite thing, like they can't even have a snack. But the, the real point is here, they couldn't partake in the table fellowship. In, in the base level of their society, you would sit around a table and you would have table fellowship every single night and that unified you as a group. 
And so th this meant that, the, and also in this thing, this is fascinating, in, the, in antiquity, a table was not the way that we would look at it. In fact, the entire room, which was the entire house in most cases, there might be a loft, but the entire house at sundown when they had the meal would become the table. So basically what they're saying is this house is so full, there's not even room for a table. The table, in a sense, in a metaphorical and literal sense, has been filled with people. So you've got this, this house that could probably literally be knocked over by how many people are in there. Um, when his family heard what was happening, so this is Jesus' family, they came, his, his earthly family, they came, uh, they came to take control of him because they were saying he's out of his mind. How many of you have heard from a family member that you are out of your mind? <laughs> this is mom, there it is. This is mom going and saying, I'm going to pull that Jesus out because he's making ways and he is out of control. So she rounds up the siblings and says, we are headed across town. We are going to put an end to this. He's gone too far this time, right? So you have the family saying he's out of his mind. And then this comes next before they can even get there. Next slide, please. Uh, the legal experts came down from Jerusalem. This would be like sort of equivalent to like the thought police. Like so you've got mom coming and you've got the thought police coming. You've got religious experts, priests, what have you coming and you've got mom and they are both storming towards you. But the legal experts get there first. And they came down from Jerusalem, which would have been a ways off. And it says and over and over they charge he's possessed by visible and throws out demons with the authority of the ruler of demons. So basically you got mom saying you're out of control, and then you've got the legal, like, religious experts of the day saying you are Satan. You're out of control, you're Satan. These are the two accusations Jesus is dealing with. And I'm going to skip past how he rebuttals. It's brilliant. Please read it for yourself. He basically tells them how can Satan throw out Satan. It's a gorgeous text, but I want to get to the where the family comes into the thing. So the next slide, please. Oh, I'm sorry. There it is. Um, his mother and brother, brothers arrived. They stood outside and sent word to him, calling for him. So this would have been a really big deal, guys. If your family showed up, you were bound to them. This wasn't just like, like teenagers these days, like, Mom, get out of here. It was like literally like you, you culturally were, were to respect them and revere them with a sense that we don't really even understand culturally at this point. So when they're outside and they're saying, come out, Jesus not doing that? is an enormous deal, not just to the family who would have been enormously upset, but to the people in, in this room at the table. They would have been like, wait a minute, can he do that? What's going on here? Uh, they stood outside and sent word to him, calling for him. A crowd was seated around him, and those sent to him said, look, your mother, brothers, and sisters are outside looking for you. He replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Looking around, those seated around him in a circle, he said, Look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. There's a couple of crazy things going on here. Remember I mentioned that everyone is sort of in this table. In that day, and I've talked about this a lot, in that day, if you sat at the same table, you belonged to each other. There was a sense of reverence and duty and family. You sit down at my family, or you sit down at my table, you are my family. And so Jesus has a moment where he calls out to them and he says, look, I'm at the table with my family, my mother and my brothers. And look at the text here. 
it, can you go back to the last slide there, Katie? Sorry. The text says his mother and brothers arrived. There was reverence for the mother and then the males in the society, there were the brothers. But then when we get to that next slide, he goes further and he says, whoever does my will, or whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. He includes a group of people that would not have ever even been talked about. And he says, basically, if you're following God, if you're following me, no matter who you are, you are my family. You are my family. This is enormously radical stuff. And it can't be condensed down by five steps to change your family's lives. This stuff permeates everything, everything. What this means is that no matter where you are in your life, family, no family, whatever it means, it means your family gets bigger. It means that we have to be good eyes and those around us are included and hey, you're invited to the table and hey, you are my family because the guy I follow says so. Let's pray together. God, I I just thank you um, for the idea of family, uh, for having us have a good eye, for letting us go to places and include people and to say, hey, no matter how broken, no matter how worked, no matter how great, no matter how joyous you are, you are are family to me because I follow a God that says so. We thank you for that, Lord. Amen.